0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. I don't know if any other pastor or preacher has ever told you this, but I I think this is true that as preachers we all have certain parts of the Bible that we prefer to preach on over others. So, for example, some preachers really like to get into kind of the fire and brimstone of the Old Testament, the prophets preaching, and and to talk about those miraculous stories in the Old Testament, to watch as God delivers his people, and to see prophecy after prophecy as the picture of the coming Messiah becomes more and more clear. I think there are, are preachers who like to just follow the Gospels, who like to focus the life of Jesus, his ministry, to listen to his preaching, to watch his great acts. And then there are others, I think, who who like to preach on the letters, the epistles, the, the pastoral tone of men like Paul and Peter and John just lends itself so perfectly to preaching even still today. At the same time, I think those same preachers would probably also say that just as they have a favorite part or book or genre of the Bible that they like to preach on, there probably is also their least favorite to preach on. And I bring this up because what used to be my favorite, I think now is almost becoming my least favorite. And that is preaching on the miracles of Jesus and you say pastor that's a little concerning why is it that you don't like preaching on jesus miracles they're amazing to watch jesus do something that only god in the flesh can do to watch him accomplish something that goes above and beyond even modern science and technology it's just amazing how could you not like to preach on them i know i get it they used to be my favorite And I can tell you when exactly they were starting to not be my favorite so much anymore. It was a couple years ago, and I was preaching on Jesus raising the widow's son at Nain back to life. And a woman was coming to church that day, and I knew she was coming, who had just lost her son. And I thought to myself, hot dog, here it is it's almost like Jesus performed that miracle, recorded and preserved it in Scripture just so that I could preach it to this morning mother that very day. I preached that sermon and I waited for her to walk out of church and I stood there with my arms open I don't know expecting her to say something like thank you pastor that was exactly what I needed to hear and instead of that she looked at me and she said well It's good to know that Jesus raised her son back to life because he obviously hasn't done it for me. And that is more or less how we tend to take some of these miracles of Jesus, don't we? That woman was not unique. They're accounts of what Jesus can do but what he more than likely has not done for you and what he probably won't. There are accounts that show us the amazing power that Jesus has, but power that he has not exercised for you or for your family, and he probably won't. So where is the comfort? Where is the hope to be found in the miracles of Jesus? Well... Before you write this or any other miracle of Jesus off, there's something that you need to know. And that is that the miracles of Jesus are never the point of the story. Are you aware of this? You see, this is why John almost, and I think it is, every single time that Jesus performs a miracle, as we heard in our Gospel today, John records it as a miraculous sign. Because that's what Jesus' miracles are. They're signs. And if you know anything about signs, you know that the sign is never the thing. It's never the place. It's never the destination. It is the thing that points you to the thing, to the place, to the destination. And this should kind of be obvious, don't you think? I, I know it's maybe a little difficult because we kind of just clipped certain sections of this, but all of John chapter 9, 41 verses detail the event between this blind man and Jesus. And the actual miracle of Jesus giving this blind man his physical sight comprised the first seven verses, and that's it. Jesus sees him, his disciples ask a question about him. Jesus kneels down, he spits on some dirt, he makes some mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, go wash it off. He does, and he's healed. And if that was the point of the story, then there would be no need for the last 34 verses. But there is a need for them because the physical miracle that Jesus performs is not the point, it's a sign. And hopefully if we've learned anything this Lenten season of these Gospel accounts that we've been listening each Sunday as we make our way through the Gospel of John hopefully one of the things that we have learned is how easy it is for us to miss the thing that Jesus wants us to see. Just think back to the various people and stories that we've heard over the past couple of weeks First it was John chapter 3, Nicodemus, this religious and political elite Jewish man of his day, he comes to see Jesus in the middle of the night and he says to him, Jesus, you know, kind of like they were in the story today, we're torn. We don't like admitting that you're from God, because you do things that we really don't like, but at the same time, you also do things that no one could do unless God was with him. And you remember how Jesus replied? He doesn't even really give it the time of day. Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water or born again. And Nicodemus says, well, that's a new one. I, I must have misheard you, Jesus, because what it sounds like you're saying is that I have to climb back into the belly of my mom and I don't think I want to do that. I don't think she wants me to do that. And I don't think anybody will. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're missing the point. And then we heard about the woman in Samaria, the woman at the well that Jesus just happens upon. And Jesus asks her after a long day of preaching and teaching and walking through the wilderness, he says, can you please get me a glass of water? And the woman says, whoa, 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 guy. Guy. If you knew anything about the cultural norms and customs in this area, then you would know that you should not be asking me for a drink of water. And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus trumped her. He said, if you knew who asked you for a cup of water, then you would ask him and he would give you water that would sustain you in such a way that you would never be thirsty again. And then her whole tune changes. Forget the customs. She says, I want that water. Give me that kind of water so I don't have to keep coming back to this well. And Jesus says, dear woman, you're missing the point. And last week we saw as Jesus went to the graveside of his friend Lazarus, and there he is met by the sisters in mourning, Mary and Martha. And Mary comes to Jesus, and, or Martha comes to Jesus, and she scolds Jesus a little bit. She says, Jesus, you know, if you, wouldn't have been, if you would have been here, none of this would have happened. And Jesus says, your brother is going to live again. And she says, I know. He will. Eventually. But not today. And Jesus said, you're missing it. And so here we are. Staring at another account, this text from John chapter 9, where Jesus performs a miracle. He gives a man who was born blind the ability to see. Did you miss it? Are you stuck looking at the sign, or are you able to see what Jesus wants you to see? That yes, at the beginning of this story, the man is blind. But guess what? By the end of it, he's the only one in town who can see. And it all starts right away in the first verse. As he went along, Jesus saw a blind man from birth. Don't miss that. What did everyone else see? Day after day as they walked past this blind beggar, they saw his problem. They saw his weakness. They saw his issue. They saw his blindness. But Jesus simply sees a man. He sees an individual person. The disciples see an opportunity to settle a theological debate. They want to know whose sin caused this man's blindness his own sin or the sin of his parents because, after all, he was born blind. So kind of hard maybe for him to sin, you know, before he was born. So maybe it was his parents. And maybe this seems strange for us to think. Maybe we kind of roll our eyes and go, there go the disciples again, hatching crazy ideas and schemes. But it really isn't all that crazy for two reasons. Number one, this was the way that the Jewish people in Jesus' day operated. This is how they kind of judged and based everything in their lives around. And they did this because this is actually the way that God shared and dictated things throughout the Old Testament. You think about it. God was always connecting the dots for his people. They never suffered in confusion. So God said to Moses, you know what, Moses, because you struck the rock and you did not trust for me to provide, you're not going to get to enter the promised land. Moses knew why. Or or he said to his people, you know what? Uh, My people Israel, because you have worshipped foreign idols and you have desecrated my temple, you are going to be shipped off into exile in Babylon. They knew why they were leaving. But you see, God was the one, and oftentimes God through his prophets, who was connecting the dots. But in Jesus' day, unless it was happening through Jesus... God wasn't really connecting the dots for his people anymore, but that didn't stop the Jews, and especially the Pharisees, from connecting them for God. So, if you suffer, then it is because of some great sin that you did. Read the book of Job. This is the whole thing his friends are trying to convince him of. Find the certain sin in your life that you committed, tell God you're sorry, and then he'll take all of your pain away. This is why we heard the the, the, the Pharisees kind of like just jump all over this guy after they ask him a question, what do you think happened? What happened to you? Who do you say this man is? And he just answers them, I don't know, I, I was blind and now I see. I would say at the very least he's a prophet. And they jump all over him because who do you think you are? You were steeped in sin at birth. Obviously, because you were born blind, and guess what? We weren't. We were born seeing, so therefore we must have less sin than you. So it makes perfect sense for the disciples to ask that question from the context of that day point of view, but it also makes sense because you and I do this all the time too. Something bad happens in our lives, and we're frantically trying to connect the dots. This was my sin and this was its punishment. So, if I want to avoid this pain and suffering in the future, if I don't want to endure this pain or suffering, well then i got to get rid of this sin in my life. And if you think that, Jesus says you're missing it for multiple reasons. First, To think that hitting all red lights on your way to work and making you a couple minutes late for work is punishment because of the harsh thing you said to your wife on your way out the door is minimizing sin. That a minor inconvenience in your life could somehow make up for offending a holy God and cutting down the one woman in the world that I claim to love more than anyone else. No, the wages of sin is not red lights, or blindness, or even cancer. The wages of sin is death and nothing less. To say, uh, to to connect these dots in life not only minimizes sin, even worse, it minimizes Jesus. You know where we're headed next week. To the skull-shaped hill where the ultimate punishment for sin will be carried out. Where darkness will descend on the light of the world. Where the question could be asked... Who in all the world sinned this man or his father that he suffers in such a way And of course the answer is neither Neither this man nor his suffer or his father but he suffers for you He suffers for me he suffers for a world of sinners and he suffers alone because he suffers in your place and in mine. He pays your wages and dies your death that you would be forgiven and set free forever. To say then that you are now being punished for some sin that you committed in your life is to say that Jesus on the cross was not. It says that Jesus did not, in fact, die for the sins of the world because you and I are still suffering for them, that he did not pay the ultimate price, that the anger and judgment of God over sin was not completely burned out on Jesus, that we still have to suffer in order to justify ourselves. You see, we want to connect the dots not only because we want to know how to avoid and and, and what sins to avoid, to avoid certain suffering in the future. But we also want it because that way we become our own mini-saviors. We get to add to what Jesus did, to make up for where he lacked. If we add our suffering to Jesus' suffering, then we'll ultimately, finally be saved, instead of simply trusting that when Jesus said, it is finished, it is it is rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind neither this man nor his parents sinned Jesus said but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life you see this is what Jesus wants you to see this is the thing that you and I could never see if Jesus does not reveal it to us. That even in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of suffering, God is not absent, nor is he present to punish. But that God is found in your suffering because Jesus is found on a cross that God is present in your suffering to display his work in the lives of his people so what is the work of God what is the work of God that Jesus is displaying through the life of this blind man it's not giving him physical sight that's not the work that Jesus is talking about remember that's the sign Three chapters earlier, Jesus actually tells us what the work of God is. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That is the miracle of John chapter 9. This is the work of God that Jesus has come to fulfill. And guess what? It's not a miracle that you or I or any other Christian can look at and go, well, it's nice that he did it for that person, but he certainly hasn't done it for me because he has. This is why John's gospel is my absolute favorite. Jesus meets Nicodemus in the middle of the night. He meets the woman at the well in the middle of the day. He meets Mary and Martha at the graveside, and he sees a blind man when no one else does. John records these small, personal encounters with Jesus, and not a single one of them is a random mistake. Jesus sought them all out found them, met them with his grace, to do the work of God, of opening their eyes, of giving them sight, of bringing them to faith in the one that God had sent. And though your small, personal encounters with Jesus are not recorded on the pages of Scripture They are just as gracious and just as memorable and just as miraculous. Whether it was Jesus meeting you in the middle of the night in the midst of your fears, or it was Jesus meeting you at the graveside in the midst of your tears, or it was Jesus meeting you at the the font of your baptism, where he now says, this is the water that is springing and welling up to eternal life. When Jesus saw you blinded by your sin and guilt and shame, he opened your eyes. He gave you his eyes, the eyes of Jesus, to see things as they truly are, to see Jesus as he truly is. To see him as the God who loves to come near you. Who comes near even in, especially in your suffering. Who comes so near to you that week after week he says, come, take, eat, drink. This is me. This is my body, my blood given, poured out for you, for your forgiveness. To see yourself as you truly are. To see yourself as forgiven and restored, perfectly holy, righteous and redeemed, to see yourself as God's beloved child. And then to see the blind beggars in your lives as they truly are. Not as political opponents or noisy neighbors or whatever it might be, but to see them as someone and know with absolute certainty that this too is one whom Christ loves. That this too is one whom Jesus longs to open their eyes. At the beginning of John 9, it seems like the blind man is the only one who can't see, and by the end of the chapter, he's the only one who can rest assured I still love preaching on the miracles of Jesus but don't miss it don't miss the point don't miss what or better whom it is that the miraculous sign is pointing to that the miracles of Jesus point to the work of Jesus in the lives of his people not the work he can do but the work that he did that he gave his life for yours, and there is no longer any more punishment left for you to suffer. The work that he does as he continues to open your eyes to see him, to see yourself, to see the redeemed world around you, to see the work that he will do, when he will call you forth to life everlasting and where he will turn your faith into sight. God hasten that day. Amen.